You're listening to the Acts, How the Gospel Changes the World series, preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. This morning, what we're going to be speaking about is the effect that the resurrection ought to have on our lives. The fact that a belief in the resurrection, the, our hope of a resurrection, ought to have in our lives. And I think that song reminds us of the fact that one day we will stand before God and one day he'll come back. And, and all of this is not just a story. It's not just a legend that one day this, these things will happen. I remember as a kid, I got in trouble a lot. You might not believe that. <laughs> if you don't believe it, you probably just don't know me. But I did get in trouble a lot, and my mom wasn't one of those moms that was satisfied just to know that I'd done something wrong and then to give me the punishment. She always wanted to know why I did what I did. And you probably have a mom like that, where it's not just about like, okay, you did this, it's, but why would you do that? What's your motivation? Why did you do it? Well, I remember one time uh, I was in preschool, and I was caught throwing sand in people's eyes, and it was an ongoing thing. I was continually throwing sand in, in people's eyes. Well, a few weeks ago, I'd gotten in trouble because I was fighting with some of the boys at this preschool. Um, I didn't really get along well with them. And so my mom, somehow at some point those few weeks prior, I'd been told a story about why you wake up with little crusties in your eyes. It's because the Sandman comes, right? And so when my mom asked me why I was doing what I was doing, I said, well, because instead of fighting them, I thought I would put them to sleep. So I, I was trying to do what she told me to do, right? My motivation was good. Just throwing sand in people's eyes is not. But if you think back, I bet this question has been asked of you many times, not just by your mom, but by your spouse, or maybe by your children, or maybe by your parents. Many people, even our bosses, they ask the question, not just what, what we did, but why we did what we did, because we understand that motivations matter. Now that I'm a parent... I find myself asking this question all the time. Miles, Spencer, why did you put makeup on yesterday? <laughs> Spencer, why did you think it was a good idea to put the whole roll of toilet paper in the toilet? Why would you get out of bed for the tenth time when you get a timeout every time? Why is it that, that they do the same thing over and over and they know they're not supposed to and they know they're going to get in trouble for it? What is it that makes them do that? Why do they do it? Why did you hit? Why did you push? Why are you crying? Why are you being mean? And that's this week. Those are the questions I had asked this week. I'm not kidding. We, we understand this, though, because it's our nature to do things for a purpose. Most of the time we act, we don't just act because we got blown by the wind in a certain direction, and so we just did it. Usually, when we act, we act because we have a purpose behind what we're doing. We have motivation. We're doing what we're doing for a reason. And so because we live on and act on purpose, I think it's a good idea for us to step back and say, well, this is what I'm doing. What is my purpose behind what I'm doing? Am I living for the right reason? Are, are the actions that people see in my life representing what I say my purpose is? What I say my reason for li living is? 
Okay? Is the resurrection motivating my life? We're going to see that in our text this morning because Paul is being asked this very question. Paul, why are you doing what you're doing? We will see him stand before the king, the Roman procurator, at least five high-ranking Roman soldiers, all the civic rulers of the city of Caesarea, and he will give an explanation for his actions. So let's pray, and then we'll get into the text. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that as we open up your word this morning, you help us to recognize its authority, its power. Lord, I pray that we would uh, submit ourselves to it. And Lord, as we see this example in Paul's life, as he stands in a difficult situation, as he's suffering and being persecuted, and here on this, this kind of mock trial, God, I pray that you'd help us to see his example and that because he believes so strongly that Jesus was the Messiah and that Jesus is alive, he acted differently. And that was his reason for living the life the way he lived. That was his motivation. God, I pray that you would convict our hearts of this one single truth, that you're alive. We love you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, last Sunday night, we set the stage for what I consider to be Paul's greatest defense in the book of Acts. He's already stood trial four times. He stood trial before the Jewish mob that was trying to kill him. He stood trial before the Jewish Sanhedrin. He stood trial before Festus, the Roman procurator. And, and he's just stood trial, sorry, he stood trial before Felix first. And then he's just stood trial before the new Roman procurator named Festus. And so this will be the fifth defense that he gives. And as we see his defense here, I don't think there's a better defense in all of the book of Acts of why Paul is what he is and why he does what he does as a believer in Christ. It's a wonderful example for us and a wonderful presentation of the gospel. And I think Luke here helps us by giving a lot of the details, setting up for the trial, because I think it's true that oftentimes we look at the Bible and we just assume that this is kind of like a play or this is something that... that that happened way off in the, in the past, and we don't recognize that these are really real stories and real people. And these things happen. And although we don't get all of the emotion and all of the tone and all of what happened from Scripture, I think we can kind of try and read this as a real story and try and get into Paul's head and trying to get into the room and see where things are at. And so Luke here does a great job of giving us these specific details that help us to visualize what's going on. And so we saw last week that what was going on in this case is that Paul has just stood trial before Festus. And that trial was kind of a little bit of a joke because these Jews were so adamant that they wanted Paul to be killed, that they wanted Paul to be tried, that they went to Festus and they asked Festus to help get him in trouble. And they asked Festus to condemn him. So Festus says, well, I'm not going to do a trial in Jerusalem. I'm going to go to Caesarea and we'll do a trial. So, so they go to Caesarea, they set up this trial, and the, the prosecution comes forward and says, well, um, we have a trial, we, we want Paul, we think he should be killed. Uh, and then Festus says, okay, what are the charges? And he goes through a couple of the charges that we've seen in the past, that, that Paul is a troublemaker, that he is teaching that, that Jesus, this Jesus is alive, that he's the Messiah, but this is just a Jewish sect, that he's causing sedition against Rome. Well, Festus hears these charges and says, okay, like I don't, I don't, I'm not making the connection between what you're saying Paul did and then what you're saying 
the charges are, but just give me some of your witnesses. Who are some witnesses to this event? And the prosecution says, oh, we have no witnesses. And there's nobody here that can testify to the things that we're saying are true. Well, all of a sudden, I mean, this is a, a case that you toss at a court, right? I mean, you don't have any witnesses. You just have hearsay about charges that should be brought and not even a reason behind these charges. So I think Festus is kind of a little bit confused. So he turns to Paul and he says, well, Paul, what do you have to say for yourself? Paul stands up and he says, I'm not guilty. <laughs> I didn't do anything wrong. Nothing wrong against the Jews, nothing wrong against the Romans. I haven't committed any crime. And so if you're a judge, what do you do at this case? Well, there's charges that don't make sense, there's no witnesses, and there's the defendant who says they're not guilty. You throw the case out, out right? I mean, it's, you're, okay, not guilty, dismissed. But that's not what Festus does. Because Festus is brand new to this position, and his desire is to, to please the Jews. He wants the Jews to like him. He wants them to follow him, that he can be a good ruler for them. And so instead of tossing the case out, he says, well, Paul, will you go to Jerusalem with me and stand trial again before the Sanhedrin? And Paul says, no, I've already done that. Not only have I already done that, I know that if I go to Jerusalem, they'll try and kill me. And they probably will kill me this time. They tried last time. And so I'm not going. I appeal to Caesar. And so Festus says, well, if you appeal to Caesar, that's great. You'll go to Caesar. Here's Festus' problem. He sits down at his desk and he starts writing out the sheet of charges against Paul and what he's going to send with Paul to Caesar when he goes to trial before Caesar. Because, hey, this is a really big deal. I mean, Nero Caesar is going, to stay, is going to listen to this case. There better be some charges, right? He says, well, the defendant's name is Paul and uh, charges. I don't know what's right. I mean, what do I put? Because so far what's come before me is kind of a joke. But the, but the problem is, if when, when he writes these charges and then they have no witnesses and there's no reason for the charges, then he's going to look bad before Nero. And not only that, he's actually not allowed to send a prisoner without charges. And so he's in this predicament. So then King Agrippa, who is seen as the expert of Judaism by Rome, he shows up and he says, Agrippa, I, I got this problem. I have this, this prisoner. I want to tell you about him. Maybe you can help me out. And so Agrippa hears about all these, the accusations. He, he understands a little bit better the historical side of this. He knows about Jesus. He knows about the way. He knows about Judaism because he himself is a Jew. And so he gets what's going on here a little bit better. And he's very intrigued by what's going on. And so Agrippa says, Festus, I would le- like to speak to Paul for myself. And so understand that, that in this trial, we're not looking at a trial where Paul could be acquitted or condemned. We're looking at a trial where Agrippa just wants to know about Paul. He is just curious, and so it's like this mock trial. Paul doesn't officially have to even come to this trial. It's not a, a true legal proceeding. It is just Agrippa's curiosity being satisfied. But as you can imagine, Paul is very happy to answer for himself. So the trial begins... And you have this, this procession of greatness all around Agrippa and Festus as they walk into this room. And the Bible says, with great pomp. And we don't use the word great pomp very often, but it comes from the word fantasia, where we get our word fantastic. And, and so they, they walk in, and it's this, this fantastic procession that's designed to 
glorify them, to show the world their greatness. So they walk in, they're wearing their red scarlet robes or their, or their purple royal robes, and they sit up on the throne and they have their crowns all shiny. And then Festus says, okay, bring in the prisoner. And so Paul walks in in his dirty garments, his prison garments. And he hasn't had a shower or bath for weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, not been eating well. And as far as we know from tradition, Paul is a pretty short guy, balding, unibrow. I mean, whenever you see... A descri- I'm serious. That, this is the, this is the tr- description of the Apostle Paul from tradition. Now, we don't know for sure that's true, but we, I guess you don't really have a reason to go against it. The point is, Paul wasn't a big, burly man. He wasn't somebody who you'd expect to see as a leading man in Hollywood. He was just an, a normal, short guy. And so he walks in, dressed terribly, with all of these powerful, beautifully dressed officials surrounding him. And he's all shackled up, and he's asked to give an answer for himself. And so that's how we come into where we're at today. And so as we read this passage of scripture, I want you to visualize what's going on here. And visualize Paul being asked and and already been humiliated and now asked to give an answer for why he lives the way he lives. Chapter 26, verse 1 says, Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Thou art permitted to speak for thyself. Then Paul stretched forth the hand and answered for himself. So Agrippa, just in saying, Paul, speak for yourself. Tell me why. Tell me about what's going on. I want you to explain the situation and explain why you're doing what you're doing. Speak for yourself. And I think it's, it's wonderful how Paul, the first thing he does is he puts up his hand. And we don't know exactly what it looked like. Maybe he was like, hey, everybody look at me. Probably not. It's probably very solemn, like, I'm going to speak. And I think this is interesting because you would expect somebody in Paul's scenario to be shy and timid not bold, and not to to just start by putting up your hand, like, listen, I'm going to speak to you. And then he starts off by being kind and respectful of Agrippa. He says, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee, touching all the things where I'm I'm accused of the Jews, especially because I know thee to be an expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews. Wherefore, I beseech thee to hear me patiently. Great deal of respect. Now, Agrippa, Paul knows Agrippa's lifestyle. Paul knows that Agrippa's a sinner. He, he knows that his lineage is, is one that has just been killing, trying to kill Jesus, kill John, kill James. This, these are his grandfather and great-grandfather and father. I mean, he knows who Agrippa is. And yet he also understands the position that Agrippa holds. And it's a position that demands some respect. And and it's a position of authority. And the Bible does tell us to honor government officials. And so Paul is following that here. And he, he speaks very respectfully, very kindly. And he asks Agrippa to hear him patiently. Do you know what that means? It means he was probably going to be long-winded. Okay? And, and it, what we read here in this in this chapter is most likely just a summary of what was said. I'm sure that you could expound on everything Paul said, and I'm sure Paul did expound, and, and Luke just gives us the highlights. But he says, hear me patiently. Okay, take your time and really listen to what I'm going to say. Verse 4. My manner of life from my youth, which was at first among my own nation at Jerusalem, know all the Jews, which knew me from the beginning, if they would testify, that after the most straightest sect of our religion, 
I lived a Pharisee. Paul begins by explaining his foundation. This is, this is who I was, this is where I'm from, this is what my life was originally built on. He first says that of my own nation. He's making the point that I'm a Jew. It's my nation. And then he says that I was born and raised, or not born, he was born in Tarsus, but he was raised in Jerusalem. Now this is, this is an impressive thing because the Jews, the, the vast majority of the population of the Jews were scattered around the whole world. There's about 4.2 million Jews alive during this time. And the greatest place that you could live as a Jew, the place that the greatest Jews lived was in Jerusalem. Okay, the vast majority of the population of Jerusalem was Jewish. The, the Jewish temple was in Jerusalem. That's where all the Jews would come to worship. So the city would swell ten times its size during feast days. And so when Paul says that I'm from Jerusalem, he's making the point that not only am I, am I Jew, but I'm a real Jew. I'm of the top 3% of Jews as far as how they viewed the Jews during that time. I, I am, I'm from Jerusalem. And not only that, he says, of the straightest sect of Pharisee. And the straightest means the, it's like the most correct, the, the most hardcore. Okay? During that time, the Pharisees were the ones that all the people knew loved the scriptures. They knew that they were willing to do whatever the Bi- what they thought the, the Bible said. There were other denominations, there were other groups, parties, that were a lot more liberal, like the Sadducees. They didn't necessarily believe all of that, and they interpreted it a little bit different. And so they were more of like a political religious group. But the Pharisees, they were the fundamentalists. So, and he's making the point that I was a Jew... Not only was I Jew, I was from Jerusalem. Not only was I from Jerusalem, I was one of the Pharisees. See, the Pharisees had the respect of all of the Jewish people. They were, the, the vast majority of rabbis in the world were Pharisees. And so he's making this point. I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew through and through. He says in other places, in Acts chapter 22, verse 3, when he's speaking to the Jews, he says, I am verily a man which was a Jew born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers, and was zealous toward God as ye are this day. Not only was he a Pharisee, but he was brought up before the feet of Gamaliel. What what that's saying is he was a disciple of Gamaliel. Gamaliel at this time was the number one rabbi in Judaism. And the only way you could be his disciple was to have him allow you to follow him. And so when Paul says that he's a Jew... He means it through and through. When he says in verse 5 that the Jews that are here could testify, sorry, verse 6? No, verse 4. Verse 5. I was right the first time. (laughs) When he says that they could testify, I mean, this is 20 years past, and he says, listen, the Jews in Jerusalem will remember me. They'll remember how Jewish I was. Just ask them. This is important because he's saying that there is something that changed. There's something that happened. There's some new motivation. And he's going to explain this in a lot more detail starting at verse 9. But we're just going to look up until verse 8 because I think verse 8 summarizes what happened to him. The change that was made. Verse 6. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, 
unto which the promise are twelve tribes, instantly serving God, day and night, hope to come. For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? Something changed. For Paul, what he's doing is he's giving his foundation and then he's saying, and this is now why I do what I do. It is the hope, the hope that was promised to our fathers. It is the hope that we find throughout the entire Old Testament. The hope that was originally given to Eve in Genesis 3.15 when she's told that her seed will bruise the head of the serpent. It is this hope, this promise that was made to Abraham that through him all nations of the earth would be blessed. It was the hope that was given to David and told to David that someday a king would sit on his throne and he would be king forever and ever. It was the hope that Isaiah spoke about when he talked about a virgin conceiving and giving birth to the one that would be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. This, this is the hope that they all expected, that the Jews were waiting for, the Messiah that would come and save them and deliver them, their Redeemer. He believed in this hope, and so he says it's because of the hope of the Redeemer. But it, that's, that's just not enough, because you, they might say, well, okay, but all of the Jews believe that the Messiah is going to come. They all believe in this. So why are you any different, Paul? He adds to what he believes that hope is, in verse nine, when he said, verse eight, when he says, "Why should you th- think it an incredible thing with you that God should raise the dead?" He's saying, "Not only do I believe that the Messiah will come, that that promise is true, and not only am I basing my life on that, but I base my life on the fact that I believe that the Messiah has come and that God has raised him from the dead." And we'll see through the rest of this chapter that he's speaking very clearly, very directly about Jesus and the fact that Jesus is risen from the dead. And so the hope that he, that the reason that he gives for his life, the motivation behind his life, is that the Messiah has come, he's risen from the dead, that Jesus is alive. That's what he's telling him. That's his whole point. This is incredibly significant for us because recognize that Paul, when he gave his background, he was saying that someday I could be the, the judge. Someday I could be a ruler. Someday I could be one of the ones that, that's dressed all pretty. I'm standing in this room before you in shackles and chains, in terrible clothes. My whole life is different. I'm suffering because I know that Jesus is alive. Because something, I believe something different, and so I'm living because of that. If it wasn't for my belief in that, I was on my way to be one of the the religious leaders of the Jews. One day, I could be part of the Sanhedrin. One day, I could be one of the ones that everybody looked up to and everybody praised and everybody thought was wonderful. In this world, I could have great accomplishment. But I chose not to go that direction because I believe that Jesus is alive. That's what he's saying. That's the point here. And so Paul can stand before all of these people who are so important and he can have something to give them. Do you know what happens in this trial? This trial is supposed to be about them finding out why Paul lives the way he lives. Ultimately, Paul says, I live the way I live because Jesus is alive and you need him too. And he puts them on trial. So here's a man standing in front of all these people telling them, you need Jesus. And he's doing it confidently. It's such a wonderful scene because you've you got to picture this guy who's all raggedy and he's not impressive from the outside. And yet he stands up and he gives them something that they all need and they leave there being convicted. I mean, 
at least Agrippa, it seems like he understood that this was for him because he understands that he's trying to persuade him to be a Christian. The reason for Paul's existence, the reason he did what he did, when he stands up for Agrippa and is asked to give an answer for himself, he says, it's because Jesus is alive. But it's not enough for us just to learn about the text. It's not enough for us to just to, to picture the scene and then to go, oh yeah, well Paul did say that and, and he is a great example for us. If we do not learn and then apply the text to our lives, then we've learned in vain. And so what I want to do today is very quickly apply this to our life. How does this scenario before us change what our circumstances should look like in our lives? Here we see that Paul's hope defined him. Right? He says it three times, the word hope. It is not only just the hope of the promise of the fathers, but now his, his hope going to the future. That Jesus is alive and someday he will meet him. I think that when we read the word hope and we read the, when we read the Bible, we sometimes understand it in the way we understand hope in modern terms. Okay, we understand hope as being something that we are optimistically expecting but unsure of. And so for us, we might look at Paul and, he, and say, well, Paul, you're basing your entire life on something that you're just optimistic about? that you're kind of just hoping will happen, but not, not really sure of? And Paul would say no, because that is not how the Bible defines hope. The Bible defines hope as a surety, something that is certain, but not yet experienced. Our hope, it's not something we have to hope for. <laughs> Does that make sense? It's not something we're optimistically expecting to happen. Our hope the hope that Jesus is alive, the hope that one day will be resurrected just as he is, that is a hope that is sure, it's certain. It is just something we haven't experienced yet, but it's just as certain as yesterday. I believe that the most important truth that a Christian will ever encounter is this truth. The most important truth that anybody can encounter is this truth. This is not just a dead doctrine. It is not just lifeless orthodoxy. It's not just something we're supposed to know in our minds to be true. The hope that we have that Jesus is alive is a sure thing. It's certain. It's not an optimistic uncertainty. We are so sure of it. And we should be so sure of it that just like Paul, we're willing to hazard our lives for it. Right? It should be the motivation behind everything we do. That was Paul's motivation. Give an answer, Paul. Jesus is alive. So the question for us is, how does this change the way we live? I think that if we really believed that Jesus was alive, and, and, and certainly I, I understand that this is not something you just, you just don't, okay, I believe it, everything changes. But I think that if we would think often about the resurrection, if we would think often about the fact that Jesus is alive and that he's here with us and that, that every day we live, we live in his presence, if we were to, to consider those things often and really believe them, then it would change the way we live. Because I wonder if we were put on trial like Paul, if people would say, well, it's pretty clear that he is living because of the resurrection. When he says that 
he believes Jesus is alive, and so he lives his life in light of the fact that Jesus is alive, I believe him, because he's living differently. I think oftentimes we live lives that, if somebody was to ask us, well, what's your motivation in life? And we were to say, well, I just, I just want to be happy. You know, I, I just want to have a, 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 a nice home and a, a nice family. And if, if, if we would say all of our motivations were those things, they would say, yeah, that makes sense. Obviously, clearly, because that's how you live. Now, those things aren't wrong. But I don't think very many people would look at our lives and say, yeah, when you say that you live your life because you believe that Jesus is risen from the dead, I believe you. Because it's clear that you are hazarding your life for the gospel's sake. It's clear that you are living your life in light of the fact that you are living with Jesus. Do you know that this truth, it changed everything about the disciples. It, this is not something that is just, okay, well that's, that's one aspect of the Christian faith. When we look at Christianity, do you know the one thing that distinguishes it from every other religion? Jesus is alive. All of our faith rises and falls on whether that is true. And if Jesus is not alive, then this is a waste of time. If he's not alive, then we should all go home. We should all quit. Okay, enjoy your life however you want to, because if Jesus is not alive, then this is a lie. It changes everything. It's supposed to change everything. And it changed everything for the disciples. Remember, they, when they found out Jesus was dead, what they did? They went and they hid when they found out he was alive, they went and for many of them, 40 years, preached the gospel. To the day they died, they preached that Jesus was alive. In the book of Acts, there's 28 chapters, there's 24 sermons. Every single one of those 24 sermons talks about the resurrection. That was what was on their lips. I mean, Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. That's how they lived. That's what they lived for. The disciples went to their deaths saying that Jesus was alive. That's what they believed. It changed everything about how they lived. Paul's life everything about who he was and what he was doing. Before he's a persecutor of the church, now he's the greatest missionary of the church because Jesus is alive. There's a song, it's called Alive, and it's written from the perspective of Mary Magdalene. And, and so Mary Magdalene is somebody that, that was a sinner. He, she came to Christ, and she was one of the first ones to go to the tomb to see Jesus resurrected. And so this song is written from her perspective, and it's her saying, you, is it you? Standing here before my eyes, every part of my heart cries, Alive. Alive. Look what mercies overcome, death has lost and love has won. Alive. Hallelujah, risen Lord, the only one I fall before. I am his because he is alive. You can't sing a song like that with all of the wonderful truth to know that death is overcome, that Jesus is alive, and not live for it. Tim Keller said, If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. If Jesus is alive, there's implications for every single person sitting in this room. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, the implication is he is the Savior, and you can trust him, and, he, and he's alive, and someday you'll, you're going to stand before him one way or the other. And so 
He died. He rose again. He, he conquered the grave. He conquered sin. What we must do to know him is just to put our faith and trust in what he's done for us. To recognize his resurrection and recognize him as the living Lord. And when we do that, we come to Christ. He gloriously saves us. But as we now know that truth, we recognize that that truth that he is alive, it transforms everything about us. We now live differently as believers. If Jesus is alive, if it is true, we will one day stand before him. If we were placed in Paul's position, I wonder what we would say. If our hope is real, we ought to be able to say the same thing Paul did. That I do what I do because Jesus is alive. The answer that I give is that Jesus is alive. You, you know that Paul wasn't Superman? He wasn't, he wasn't really anything more than flesh and blood. No different than you or I. When we look at Paul's life and we're so impressed by him, I hope you understand that we can be impressed by Paul primarily because he lived his life in light of that one truth. That was it. That is what separated Paul from, I think, what I might call your average Christian. Jesus is alive. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes on me, though he were dead, yet he shall live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. What an incredible truth. Let's pray.